And now we're running, and now we're live. We are. Welcome to the Impact Narrative, episode... Season 2. Season 2, episode... Season 2. Right, okay. You've forgotten. I've forgotten. Yeah. Season 2, episode something. Uh, five. Five, Roz tells us. Five, excellent. That's brilliant. Season 2, episode 5. And, and of course, we have to explain what it is. It's where we discuss things of common interest or his general interest some of them are not of any interest like your jigsaw puzzle that has a great deal of of intellectual merit and interest well well maybe you get onto that later on yeah but uh, we we discuss news stories we discuss topical events we discuss what's going on in the world Mm. and what's going on on in the world this week simon nothing particularly cheery no you amaze me so should i prompt that we'll have to say who we are his name is Simon Mabin. And his name is Mark Garnett. That's correct. Collectively, we are... We are The Impact Narrative. Oh, excellent. That's yeah. almost as if we've worked on it. <laughs> well, we... Spent hours this morning <laughs> instead of doing PhD supervisions. Oh, no, sorry, it was no, the other way around. Um, Nothing could be quite so amateurish without hours of, pro- uh, of preparation. Uh, preparation. See, preparation. I, 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 yeah. So, uh, Simon... It's a good job you've not just been lecturing, Mark, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, I'm all talked out. What was, so, what was today on? Um... Well, uh, Britain and the World between 1992 and 2007, which I prefaced oh, by okay. alluding to current goings-on in uh, the United Arab Emirates. And, and I was hoping that I could pick your uh, enormous planet-sized brain on, uh, on the situation, because it seems to me to have implications for Britain, but mm. I think you would prob- probably want to be talking about the implications more generally for the region, well, as well as Britain. I'm more concerned with the implications for a certain Matthew Hedges. Right, yeah. Be damned with the region, be damned with the implications for Britain. I think we need to, to focus more on the the abhorrent treatment of a of a, a PhD student from Durham University, of course one of our rivals, but nonetheless we'll put aside those differences. This is a, a PhD student who's gone out to... To Abu Dhabi, gone out to the United Arab Emirates to do research, and has has done that research in accordance with Durham's ethical research policies. He's gone through all of the necessary channels. He's gone through all the ethical procedures that that all universities have to have now. Yeah, he's gone through all of those things. He's gone through all of the risk assessments that all universities have to have. Mm. He's done all of that. He's ticked every box, and mm. he's still been detained for months in pretty shocking conditions mm. and then yesterday on the day that we are recording this is thursday the 22nd yesterday he was given a life sentence for spying mm. and this is someone who was was treated pretty badly uh, subjected to solitary confinement who was forced to read and sign a a document in Arabic, as someone who doesn't speak any Arabic, doesn't mm. read Arabic, turned out that it was a confession, and now obviously he's he's stuck in an Emirati jail. Mm. And it's uh, a, um, yes. a pretty worrying time. 
Well, obviously, one's very deepest sympathies uh, go out to uh, Mr Hedges, but um, uh, hope one would hope in a situation like this that there would be some kind of solution to it. Um, and one would the, hope. The British government would get involved. However, from what you've just told me, if somebody feels that they have no alternative but to sign a document that they can't read... Uh, it would seem that if you're presented with a document like that, then usually what you might do is to say, I would like to have consular support, I'd like to have legal support arranged by Mm -hmm. my government, and it doesn't seem like that happened. No, and it also transpires that his uh, his sentencing was was over in five minutes without his lawyer present. Mm. So, he's been held since May. Mm. Now... There are obviously all kinds of concerns about due process here, all kinds of issues about about the legality of it, about the ethics of what he's done, of course, but about the, the processes, the legal, political, judicial processes that have, have meant that Mr Hedges mm. has been detained and imprisoned in, in the Emirates. Now, Mark, I'm, I'm curious to know your... Your lecture today was prefaced with this this um, discussion. How how mm. were you linking it? What was the? Well, I I, I ventured the opinion uh, that maybe twenty thirty years ago, if a British national had actually been engaged in activities which could be de- described as espionage, if that person was caught, then the incident almost certainly would have been dealt with diplomatically and the person probably would have been uh, expelled and there would be a dressing down for the British ambassador or something yes. to that effect but that there would be no question of the person being imprisoned in uh, Abu Dhabi and what's happened here is the complete reverse that somebody who's innocent has been sentenced to life imprisonment and I, I was say, as I say I'm, I'm sorry if my interest in this is um, uh, seems to um, downgrade the human factor of course it doesn't but um, my immediate thought is why on earth Britain has got itself into the kind of low repute in the region and perhaps more widely that um, far from being in a position to get culprits off the hook it now isn't in a position to help innocent people Mm. that was my question and it just seems to be uh, an absolutely stark illustration of britain's declining influence sure i I think you're absolutely right i mean we're hearing uh, hearing rumors rhetoric musings coming out of london from mr hunt and mrs may about the need to do something but i Mm. i fear that the inability to even get this thing resolved before it going to trial suggests yeah. a great deal about Britain's role in the world. Yeah. And it's, it's declined. Let's not forget, the Emirates is supposedly one of the UK's key um, regional allies, a key strategic partner in the Middle mm. East. And I'm just reading here comments from my old PhD supervisor, ah. Clive Jones, um, who is Matt Hedges' supervisor at Durham. He was on the Today programme and he's been quite explicit in terms of, uh, of what Hedges was doing. I'll, I'll quote, There was nothing clandestine or covert in any of the material he'd been using in his thesis. 
-hmm. He went to the United Arab Emirates to conduct a series of interviews to help flesh out some of the theories and some of the empirical evidence he had actually collected. Mm. If we had any inkling that Matt was in any sense, shape or form was going to be in danger, then of course we would not have agreed to let him go. Mm. Matt was no stranger to the United Arab Emirates. He lived there on and off since the age of nine. He knew many people he was going out to interview. So again, it's utterly bizarre and indeed perverse and indeed mm. a miscarriage of justice that this has befallen him. Mm. So incredibly strong words there from, from Clive, who is, is incredibly well versed in this type of thing. Mm. And but he isn't, because the family is criticising the British government and the Foreign Office in particular. Yes. But nothing there implies such a criticism, but I guess it's somewhere in the background of well, what he's saying. I think there's, there's, there's a couple of things at play. There's obviously the way in which this has been hand, handled in Abu Dhabi, the way in which mm. uh, someone who's gone out to do research in a place that he's previously lived, yeah. that mm. he was um, that he was there, he would, he'd reached out, he'd agreed to talk to people... Obviously, mm. officials. He was working on a, a, a thesis looking at civil-military relations in the UAE. So, obviously, key officials would have been involved in, in being interviewed. So, there's obviously some some mm. tacit approval there. Mm. But then there's the there's a a criticism of the way in which the British government has handled or indeed not handled this. Yeah, and I think that's entirely accurate with what you're saying here. That that. Either there's an unwillingness or an inability to to actually affect any any real change. Mm. But yes, I mean, on on the face of it, you know, one could immediately start thinking. In the wake of Brexit, um, we have trading relations with the United Arab Emirates, which we have a trade surplus with the United Arab Emirates. They're good customers of ours. And it could be thought that the regime might say, well, because of Brexit, Britain's going to need us more than ever before and countries like us. And that means that we can start treating them in a, a far more uh, a, a cavalier fashion. But that still doesn't explain why on earth? I mean, there must be some internal domestic, but maybe he spoke to the wrong people. Maybe he's trespassing on the kind of territory which would be relevant, particularly in Egypt, the relationship between the military and the mm -hmm. people or whatever. Uh, but even so, asking the wrong questions when you're a citizen of a friendly nation should be a reason for somebody to tap you on the shoulder and say, actually, you're not wanted here. Could you please leave? Mm -hmm. It just seems so extraordinary that again one can only presume that there there is somewhere in it it's not necessarily an anti-british agenda but certainly a contempt for britain it sounds like it certainly sounds like it and i think there's going to be serious repercussions here it, we had a, a conversation with one of our students this morning and and we were obviously incredibly concerned about yeah his absolutely. going out to uh, uh, to a part uh, of the con part of the region to do research, and yeah. and there's obviously going to be strict calls for for stopping any PhD students from going out to the Emirates. Oh, the Emirates start off with, but also to British tourists. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, and and you've got all the other implications of Dubai as the great hub of uh, of transport. And I've lost count of the number of times I've transited through yeah. both uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Yeah. But as as an intellectual community, there's a burgeoning interest in the Gulf yeah. for a, a range of reasons: security, economic, religious, logistical, mm. and all of that has been called into question because of the safety of those who want to go out and do research there. Yeah, this is previously considered to be one of the safer, one of the more stable Gulf monarchies. Yeah. 
and now we're seeing how how a British student from a, a reputable university mm. is being treated. I mean, but this is perhaps where, where the stability comes from, that anyone who even asks awkward yeah. questions would confine themselves, even if they should have diplomatic protection to some extent, they're incarcerated for life. Yeah, I mean, the other thing we, we should just quickly touch on, Mark, is the extent to which Gulf states are financing British academic institutions. Mm. I mean, this isn't just the case of of a of a small state in the Gulf wanting to to restrict its uh, intellectual inquiry. Let's say there's something something bigger at play, or something somewhat more complex at play, mm. because the Emirates as well as Kuwait are sponsoring a great number of highly prestigious British universities, yeah. pumping great amounts of money into those institutions, yeah. including Durham. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Emirates have put money into Durham, but I know that, that Durham has received money from Money the from, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. But so has the LSE, so has Cambridge, mm. uh, and a number of others. They have received money from these states. Mm. And so there are calls for, from some circles, calls for some kind of boycott, some kind of... Mm. But uh, again, that's where <laughs> the self-interest of these institutions of is going to come into play. And in the end, I mean, this is all too redolent to me of the early 1980s and the death of the princess episode. Uh, I mean, it's it's like the same thing writ hideously large, but that because of the economic Im importance of Saudi Arabia, the British Foreign Secretary humbled himself and criticised British documentary makers yes. for looking beneath the surface of Saudi society and you know it was as if we were ashamed we were but the British apologized for actually wanting to uncover nefarious practices which really were going on um, and and I do wonder in the end Brexit comes into absolutely everything but we're going to have to be doing more of this in the future because uh, when we're looking when for you trading, this, you mean more of the groveling to and the sacrificing of oh, of individuals on the altar of economic self-interest. Well, yeah. I was going to say of, of normative values, but I fear that normative sacrifice includes individuals. Yeah, oh, quite absolutely, That's and, and a devastating cost, Mark. Well, it is, but we've been prepared to pay it for a very long time. Um, as I say, in, in regard to Saudi Arabia, as soon as the death of the princess episode happened, the Saudi regime knew that Britain would never... Uh, the British government would always step in to prevent people from trying to uncover the truth about Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, so that price has been paid an awful long time ago, and you might look at other costs uh, incurred in other relationships we have across the world uh, in which... Britain has refrained from doing what a power of any significance would do because it's frightened of losing lucrative contracts, etc. And, you know, of course, we are saying all this in the wake of Mr. Trump's interesting and very, I mean, very plain spoken, basically saying what happened to Mr. Khashoggi was despicable, not really pulling any punches from that, but then saying maybe the Crown Prince wasn't involved or whatever, I'm not sure, and we're still not proven, of course, but then saying, well, we get dollops of dosh from them, and so let's go easy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and and to be honest, this is a real test of character for the. This is the academic. The fate of academics doesn't often hit the headlines, but it's on the front page of virtually every national newspaper. And for Theresa May at the current time, I think this is another challenge that she could very much yeah, do without. Yeah, certainly. Uh, there are going to be serious repercussions for a great many of, of, of us intellectuals, us academics, 
um, people who are engaging in, in the study of this part of the world, it, this is not going to go away anytime soon, mm. nor should it. No, uh, uh, and about all sorts of implications. I mean, it, even a thing that I'm very interested in, although this isn't Dubai, but the racing industry depends so much on the wealth of people from that. Mm. And this is a big employer, the, the racing industry, and it could have a devastating blow. If we're going to apply sanctions, you know, begin to look unfriendly towards the United Arab Emirates, who knows? Because these people can easily take their money out of Britain. And that is the point, that in the end, because this country is no longer a manufacturing power of any significance... Yeah. It is basically kept afloat on finance, and the finance comes from countries who, in return, can basically do what they like mm -hmm. without fear of chastisement from Britain. And I think, you know, for a debate about Britain's role in the world, which was implied in Brexit, and the, you know, all these cliches about the golden future, it's a golden future of grovelling to tyrannical regimes. And that might be unavoidable, but it's ridiculous to talk about our new strength in the world when these developments are going to make it less likely yeah. that we can have anything like a, an in, a face of integrity in, in international relations. Of course. We've not even talked about Manchester City. We've not talked about the extent uh, to which the City of London is... I like horse racing more than football. Well, I'm a Newcastle United fan, so... <laughs> well, that's um, is this something to the... Is this the Emirates Stadium? It uh, is. Yeah, funny that. Mm. So maybe some good will come of this. <laughs> yeah, or perhaps, but... Start boycotting Arsenal. I certainly have not bought a season ticket this year. Me either. Right. Oh, well, you see, your boycott, the boycott too. begins. And that <laughs> is the other thing. I think this is the kind of thing that people might wonder about taking their own sanctions against the United Arab Emirates. And you can't stop buying their oil, but you can. Certainly what they're trying to do, this is a bizarre thing. They're trying to use their money to build up a soft power profile, hence the exactly. investment in the universities. And they've just destroyed that at a stroke. And yeah. it is a possibility that the government might be able to take Weasley, uh, you know, just a slap on the wrist type of thing and try to do things behind the scenes. If they haven't managed to do so so far, I can't see... Yeah. They certainly can't do it without... They can't save any face. It's similar to the mess that Mr Johnson got himself into in terms of uh, Iran. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no no good an answer for the British government, but it could be that people might start wondering how they could take their own sanctions. Certainly holiday-making in that yeah. area... I would have hoped that people are going to think more than twice about doing that. And that is, again, they don't need the money, but they do need the positive exactly. international image. Yeah. Mark, we've been sort of touching, skirting around an issue. And I think the second part of the show, we need to touch on Brexit a bit more. Because since we last spoke... A lot has happened since we last spoke. A lot has happened. Um, there's been a deal... Yeah, there's been a deal. Well, what do you want me to say? I mean, this is just the, the most... It would take five hours. Well, I should just Unbelievable say, before the deal was, situation. Was, was completed, I was in Parliament. Oh, of course. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, uh, it's your board. fault. And yeah. there's, the, there's the obligatory weekly yawn. <laughs> yawn. Um, we just were, really, it's a word, Brexit, isn't it? It's well, a trigger, it a is. yawn trigger. We were, Simon we were never sleeps. I just, uh, yeah. Launching the first Only during my lectures. report. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's why I come along every week. It's a good chance to get nine, 75 40 minutes. 40 winks. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, we launched the first CEPAD report. And it was all happening. It was, it was all, all kicking happening. off. We were there. We were down the corridor from Brexit. Central. Indeed. Right. Fantastic. Anyway, Touched by... 
anarchy and chaos. Yeah, yeah I mean, so, well, uh, this time last week then, or whenever you were, yeah, this time last week, it looked like Theresa May was gone by the weekend, mm-hmm. and there was a you know, debate in which uh, she made a statement um, setting out her case perfectly well, no coughs or hesitations or repetitions, a perfectly adequate statement of the facts, and then was just bombarded with uh, hostile questions for more than an hour. She was at bay, and you know it did look like she couldn't survive, and people started talking about leadership challenge, all that sort of thing. The parliamentary arithmetic looked terrible, mm. it still looks terrible. And then she did what prime ministers can do, but very few of them have got the sheer st- pig-headedness of Mrs May she used the media she made you know press gave a press conference brilliant handle and people still think she's a bit robotic I thought she was brilliant she she handled the questions with a, a touch of humor which is a little bit uh, unusual surprising. but complete and utter defiance and in the end you know what she's saying is this is the only compromise deal on offer and, and if you unpick it, if you look behind it, she started as a very lukewarm Remainer. When she was handed the Brexit chalice, she thought, right, I'm going to go with this because I'm going to get free of the European Court of Justice. I'm going to get free of all these terrible migration mm-hmm. figures. In other words, there is a big, for me, a big silver lining in Bre- Brexit. So I'm going to say things like the ridiculous Brexit means Brexit. Yeah. She said, right, well, the people have decided I'm not that bothered, to be honest. I'm, I'm quite happy to go along with Brexit. And she, with that pragmatic outlook and a basically certain real goals to get out of Brexit, hasn't been able to produce anything more than a compromise on the EU's terms, which it, which it is at the moment. Yeah. The withdrawal thing is definitely a compromise on the EU's terms. What comes out in the end, and this is why the foaming Brexiteers, this show has no opinion on this at all, apart from <laughs> perhaps saying that certain people have behaved in a pathetic fashion. Um, others foam. Foam, well, the foamers, uh, that, that, that um, you know, they have chosen to find fault with it mm. because they don't want to comp- compromise. Sure. And in particular, the DUP, and this is Mrs May's fault, she should not. She should have said, I'm going to... Um, I, I, I obviously want my party to remain in office. It's in the national interest to do so, but it's not in the national interest to be dependent on the Democratic Unionist Party for all sorts of reasons. And now she's being paid back uh, handsomely by them because, in the end, the backstop agreement is not going to come into operation. It is a backstop. It's a, if everything else fails, but they're going to make sure other things don't fail. So the idea that Northern Ireland is going to be treated different from the rest of the United Kingdom is theoretical rather than real. Yeah. And yet the DUP, because they do what they always do, is try to get more and more money out of the British government. They've decided, you know, these are people who are deeply unappealing from the point of view of democratic politics. I mean, they basically, they've got democratic in their title, but what they do is basically bully people to... Into the they they don't deal they bluster right, they've okay. always done this Ian Paisley who became a <laughs> you yes. know saw the light in the end but he started off by blustering and talking nonsense mm-hmm. and and trying to get his way by talking by stirring up fears in his community and then saying to the government the only way to get round these fears is for you to do exactly what I'm telling you here's my shopping list. I mean, this isn't real. Po- this is the politics of um, small town America or yeah. whatever. Um, 
it perhaps is Donald Trump's politics. But anyway, leave that aside. So Mrs May has so far won because so, she's seen off the foamers. So what's but not the DUP, the, um, and, and oh, nothing good's going to come of that. Well, yeah, mm. that's that's maybe for another conversation. But what happened with all the the myriad people who wrote letters to the 1922 committee? Well, there was no... The myriad was about 26 or something. Right, so it and, wasn't the... And you see, in the end, the, cons- the Conservative Party is dedicated to survival, self-preservation, winning elections, and this is the hilarious thing about this, which isn't hilarious if you're a Conservative, Mrs May will not fight the next general election unless something bizarre happens. So you've got somebody who is an electoral liability who because the Brexiteers have overplayed their hand, they actually have made it more likely she might survive right. to lead. And so what you've got is the mass of the Conservative Party saying, let's get this blooming compromise through because the alternatives are horrible. General election, horrible. Yep. Second referendum, horrible. Yep. Um, no deal Brexit, probably horrible. That sort of thing. So we're stuck mm-hmm. with Mrs May. Ken Clark very wisely said she's doomed to lead because there just is no other solution. He However, does have a way with words, doesn't he? He does, but, well, he was the one who said a, a bloody stubborn woman or whatever <laughs> he called her, which is absolutely true. Um, but the party, which is wedded to the idea of self-preservation, is now choosing somebody who is seen as an electoral liability as their means of self-preservation. And so they're going to have to hope that after Brexit she'll be persuaded to take a, a retirement somewhere right but that'll be in april i should think right and in the meantime i mean but the trouble is that we can't get till april because we've got the parliamentary vote on the withdrawal bill and that's going to there's no deal there is no way that anything is going to get through the house of commons because uh customs union and single market isn't going to get through the house of commons uh the compromise isn't going to get through the house of commons no deal isn't going to get through the house of commons and so somehow the opposition parties are going to have to get together and i don't know delay i don't know but we'll get they're probably going to have to go to see mrs may and say we can withdraw our article 50 you think that's that's where this is going? I, I, I honestly, I'm just thinking of all the possibilities. None of them look possible. Right. <laughs> um, What's interesting? Impossible that is possibilities. There was, a, um, there was a, a legal effort to go to, uh, was it the European Court about uh, about withdrawing Article Fifty? Right. Well, I mean, but the, the and the, the oh, UK, the British Supreme nightmare. Court said. We are not going to stop this from going forward. Well, but, but, but this, well, they're not going to do it. But exactly, Theresa May yeah. can do it. Parliament can do it. I mean, she was the one who put in. She, the Parliament ag- mm. agreed that the, the thing would be triggered, and you can just untrigger it. And you know, this is where things could really get very, very unpleasant because the cliff edge Brexiteers are. They've got a mixture of, 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 of uh, on the one hand, they've all lost their heads because of the referendum. They didn't expect to win, and so they're just walking around like Jacob Rees-Mogg as if they own the place already, and they're making dreadful mistakes because of their hubris mm. or what have you. And that is now making them furious. And so trees in May, they all spout this rubbish on their websites um, that she somehow, because she has batted for Britain, and that's what the public realise, her opinion poll ratings have, have risen appreciably. But the parliamentarians are not rational on this. And they see anything short of no deal Brexit as a sellout of Britain. Unbelievable. 
Uh, her version of the national interest is the one that people will consider. There was the funniest thing I've heard in ages was a little shaft of humour in all this. Liam Fox made a speech the other day when he said, sometimes you can't do what you want to do, you have to act in the national interest, <laughs> which implies that what he wants to do isn't in the national interest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and of and course, the Brexiteers and the cabinet are all overplaying their hands and Gove and all the rest of it. It's really, and they're hating each other more. The ones that stay in the cabinet hate the ones that are outside and vice mm. versa. It is horrendous. It's worse than I could have imagined. Really horrible. Okay, I, I have two quick things. One, mm. have you ever seen. Uh, a, a period in British politics quite this bad. Well, no, I was asked about this. William Hague said the other day that this is the worst in his lifetime. It is the worst. Um, if you look at all the angles, we had terrible uh, problem. We had problems in the eighties. We had problems in the seventies. You could talk about Suez. Suez was handled really smoothly. Mm -hmm. uh, Anthony Eden was persuaded to go on and extended. There was lots of demonstrations. Whatever. Uh, the only parallel is nineteen forty in the fall of the Chamberlain mm -hmm. government. But then there was a shared sense of an aim at the end mm -hmm. of it. This time there isn't. Then the parties were far less um, split than the, the multiple splits everywhere. So you've got to say that this is unparalleled in British history. Wow. In, in its complexity yes, and its capacity course. for something stupid to emerge out of it. What happened with Cham Chamberlain, something you know, constructive was going to come out of it. What happened with Suez, mm. something dubious, repairing bridges with America. This is where all the options look to be bad. Yep. Wow. Even a second referendum, because, of course, the, yeah. it'll be horrible. It will. I, the other thing that I was just going to say quickly, because we are rapidly out of time, and is there something on the desk that you wanted to mention? What, Jigsaw um, of the Week? No, well, yes. Um, no, you know, my the, mug? The, the other thing is that it seems to be a, a recurrent theme Thank. across this episode, the idea of the national interest and, mm. and figuring out misunderstanding yeah. the national interest and the devastating consequences of getting that wrong. Getting it wrong. Well, this has happened so often. And as I was saying in my lecture not so very long ago, the trouble is that all of the people who've been in charge of Britain's foreign policy except for perhaps Ted Heath, although he was with Alec Douglas Hume as a partnership, but prime ministers have tended to have vested interest in presenting a view of the world which on which you cannot base a realistic foreign policy because mm. it is still based on this idea of Britain retaining global status. As, as long as that remains part of the mindset of British politicians, we're not going to get rational decision-making. And it's no disgrace to say we're a highly significant uh, force in the world and that our future might lie more in soft power, all these kind of things. That Britain will still matter. But if you're still making people think that nothing is changed that we are still the nation the one that the football fans sing two world wars one world cup and all that sort of thing while that mentality is alive and kicking in political circles then yeah. we, we really are going to keep making terrible mistakes well mark i think on that pretty depressing note we're out of time but yeah not um, good somber very very somber mm. i feel somewhat Churlish to perhaps talk about doing the usual things that one should do. Oh, right, yeah. Well, subscribe if you want subscribe to hear more somber stuff. Share. We've got loads more where this came from. <laughs> yeah. We Gallows ain't got started. Humor. Yeah. Uh, Spotify, mm. iTunes, iTunes uh, SoundCloud, SoundCloud Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, eBay, um, Amazon. 
Etsy. Other websites are available. Um, Etsy. Etsy, probably. These are all websites, and some of them you can access um, yes. us on. And so, yeah, wish you good luck doing it. But so yeah, subscribe, like, uh, share, share, yeah, that kind of thing. And share, then, share, a, American pop singer of. Uh, some vintage dubious vintage perhaps. excellent anyway so well yeah. let's just hope next time we all meet uh, we'll have something a bit uh, more positive to talk about let's hope see you later mark <laughs>